Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to another episode of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. I am delighted to be able to welcome to our podcast series, which covers the extremely wide range of topics impacting compliance officers in financial services firms. Now, for this particular podcast, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my colleagues, Rachel Walcott and Lindsay Rogerson. Rachel is Chief UK European Correspondent at TRRI, and Lindsay is Senior Editor. Now, both of them, Lindsay and Rachel, are extremely experienced journalists focusing on financial services. Today, we have a wide-ranging agenda and we'll be chatting about the compliance implications of a range of global topics, including Brexit, ESG, now that's the evolving environmental, social and corporate governance expectations, and personal accountability, together with operational resilience and technology, now that's specifically subtech and regtech. We'll then move on to the changes being seen at the financial services regulators themselves, With a continuing background of the pandemic, it isn't just the firms themselves that have serious issues to address. Many of the globally important regulators are undergoing their own reviews and have key challenges. And if the regulators are potentially reconsidering their supervisory approach, that has a potentially significant knock-on effect for the firms themselves. So without further ado, kicking off with Brexit, Lindsay, where are we now with the impact on financial services? Thanks, Susanna and hello. Um, well, Brexit, uh, the transition ended and financial services got um, exactly what it thought it was going to get, which was not a lot. Uh, one and a half or two, if you're being generous, equivalence decisions, which are time limited. But that said, the industry had prepared very well for this. We haven't had, um, you know, horror stories of things going wrong. Everybody had moved where they wanted to move. They had set up well ahead. Um, So I think it's gone reasonably well. We have now, of course, moved on to where we go from here. And the um, joint declaration that went alongside the trade agreement, trade and cooperation agreement, rather, um, in December, uh, had just a few paragraphs um, on financial services and where next. But they are basically that the Treasury and Commission have agreed to agree um, a working way forward, which will deal with um, various things, uh, you know, including where divergence appears, how they work together in uh, international, global setting standard setting bodies. Uh, so that should be agreed by March. However. We learnt on Monday, courtesy of Marietta McGuinness, the uh, commissioner for DG FISMA, that uh, talks haven't actually got underway yet. So we're almost a month into that timeline and they haven't started talks. So who knows? Um, They may get something by March. They may not. The Treasury told us that they are still very much committed to that timeline. So we'll just have to wait and see. What people shouldn't expect is that that, um, and to be honest, I don't think many in the industry are expecting that the MOU, when it's agreed, will uh, open the floodgates for the remaining uh, 60 plus possible equivalence uh, agreements. So 
it is very much wait and see. Um, we've seen ESMA sort of flexing its muscles on uh, reverse solicitation. So I expect to see a little bit more of that. And also we are going to see some kicking of the tires um, on substance and you know what these operations look like. And that works both ways. The UK government has said it, sorry, the UK regulators have said that they will be doing the same here as well to operations that are, that are being set up. So we have a podcast entirely dedicated to Brexit, what next, um, in, in March. And so I think I'll just leave it there for now. Lovely. Thank you, Lindsay. And moving on to ESG, so environmental, social and corporate governance, um, coming to you, know, you can barely go a day without somebody talking about ESG in some form. So what should firms be aware of at the moment? OK, so I think the big thing for UK based firms this year um, is going to be the Bank of England climate stress test. They have been well warned that this um, is taking place. In fact, it was actually delayed uh, by 12 months thanks to COVID. So and the and the regulators have um, not only signaled that this was taking place, they've they've signaled very clearly what you should have done in preparation for this. So, you know, I think it was almost two years ago now, the firms were told that they needed to be appointing somebody who had oversight at SMF level, who had oversight of their climate uh, mitigation work. And so, you know, that person absolutely should be in place. Um, and there are obviously the maps of responsibilities that go along with that. Um, the regulators have also, well, overseen, it was an industry collaboration, but the Climate Risk of uh, Climate Financial Risk Forum, their guide that was published last June, um, it has worked examples of how you should go about, you know, a, preparing for, you know, producing the data that regulators want to see. And also there was the Dear CEO letter before that, which um, in which regulators kind of expressed their disappointment with the work to date that firms have been doing to produce climate, the, the climate data that they wanted. So those are, you know, there's been a lot of signaling about what firms should have done uh, in prep for this. And if they haven't, who knows, you could expect to see, I, I know there's going to be no naming and shaming, but that doesn't mean that the firms and, you know, behind the, you know, behind that, that firms will be expected to uh, account for um, any gaps in their data. But finally, I think it's important to, uh, in the ESG space, to cover off the now growing clamor for some kind of global level taxonomy. Um that all firms can get behind so that the data is standardized. This has been an ask for industry. It, you know, there are knock-on effects of uh, cost effects for having to meet various different regional requirements um, and sub-regional requirements are you know, considerable. Uh, so the idea of a global taxonomy is certainly gaining a, a lot of attention. And the UK government, which of course will be hoping uh, hosting COP26 in November has made it a key plank of that work stream to agree a global taxonomy. So, yeah, there's a lot happening in this in this space, Susanna. Absolutely, and and with Brexit and ESG is just two things firms need to think about. Um, adding into the mix personal accountability for senior managers. Now, 
absolutely, that has been a perennial concern and not perhaps just in financial services, but it is certainly a perennial concern in financial services. So where are we with the current issues on personal accountability? It's interesting. Um, I wrote last year that uh, 2020 was going to be the year where we might finally see some enforcement as envisaged by the, the lawmakers who framed the regulation in the first place. Of course, COVID stepped in, and so we haven't seen that. But it hasn't gone away. This 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 um, issue of the uh, disagreement, really, and it is a disagreement between the lawmakers who created the SMR uh, SMCR regime and the way the regulators have interpreted it. Um, in December, the PRA produced a. An evaluation of SMCR in its first five years. And it said in that document that it sees the regime as primarily a supervision tool. And this is not, absolutely not what lawmakers intended. And uh, funnily enough, this issue arose yesterday during a Treasury Set Committee hearing, or which is considering what scrutiny needs to be uh, subjected. Um, um, over UK regulators now that we are out of the European system of accountability. And it was interesting that um, Sharon Bowles singled out the SMCR as her example of where regulators have narrowed what lawmakers intended. Uh, And she said very much that this should not be allowed to be the case. Regulators shouldn't be allowed to change the intent. And so you know, as we set up this new framework uh, for the regulatory architecture, I think that will be one to watch to see where that this space ends. We can't have any discussion, Susanna, on um, SMCR without mentioning Dame Elizabeth Gloucester's independent inquiry, which reported in December. Um, the um, she turned the SMCR on the Financial Conduct Authority's senior management um, to great effect, actually, and. Uh, I said in the Outlook piece, which we mentioned in our notes attached to this podcast, that it it was really a a class act in a lesson of how to apply it. So, um, yes, it will be interesting to see how that is uh, followed uh, through. We still haven't seen any uh, enforcement cases from SMCR. We are regularly told that there are such cases under discussion. Um, so we may see some of those coming through this year. Uh, Ireland has yet to implement its own personal accountability regime. I, my understanding is this is the the, the legislative um, that needs that needs to be put in place by by um, the Irish Parliament uh, has been stalled by COVID, but it's still very much on the agenda. So. That will be interesting because I do think the march of the accountability systems is uh, is not is not is not going away. I, I would completely agree with that. I mean, I have written about the proliferation of accountability regimes around the world. I mean, Australia's got one now. Hong Kong, Singapore, um, they are absolutely proliferating. And with the change of administration in the US, it's entirely possible with uh, people like Gary Gensler in charge of the SEC now that personal accountability, not in the same shape or form as the senior managers and certification regime, 
But it's entirely possible that very senior people at financial services firms will have to be at least a wee bit more concerned about their personal accountability in the US. So I absolutely want to watch, totally want to watch. Um, Shifting gears slightly here, um, Rachel, operational resilience. Now, the pandemic has to be seen as the ultimate workout for any operational resilience. So now we are hopefully nearly post-pandemic. What does good and or better practice now look like for firms? Hi, Susanna. Uh, Yeah, definitely early on, it became clear that operational resilience frameworks would be in for an all-the-run stress test during this pandemic. And now that we're going into the next phase of the pandemic, many of us here in the UK are still locked down. One of the key points is to keep the focus on operational resilience as working from home and working remotely drags on. So best practice for firms will be acknowledging that some controls have been compromised and weakened by the shift to remote working and the long-term shift to remote working. And therefore, vigilance is a watchword for firms who are on top of this issue. They're concerned with cybersecurity, the assessment of potential vulnerabilities, and are recognizing that temporary work solutions, working from home, for example, and process, process exemptions may become almost permanent. So they need to account for all of that. And firms are also concerned about employee resilience, covid working from home fatigue. It's something a lot of my contacts raised last year in terms of employee wellness. And I want to pull out some quotes from the virtual uh, World Economic Forum event that's going on, where some senior bankers have mentioned that they don't think working from home is sustainable. And part of that has the operational and culture uh element to it. So Jess Staley said, it's remarkable it's working as well as it is, but I don't think it's sustainable. It will increasingly be a challenge to maintain the culture and collaboration that these large financial institutions seek to have and should have. And Mary Erdos, who runs asset and wealth management at JP Morgan, said of working from home and remote working, it is fraying, it is hard, It takes a lot of inner strength and sustainability without the energy that you get from being around other people. So I think that's pretty clear uh, in that where firms are coming from. On the regulatory side, uh, regulators here in the UK, like the FCA, the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority have been focused on technology and cyber resilience, which should be addressed in a lot more detail in an upcoming policy statement. I think it's due out maybe next month. And I think the human angle is going to play a big part here too. Uh, Employee well-being has been another uh, concern, particularly for the FCA. People have been under a huge amount of strain and the concern is that this strain is going to have knock-on effects uh, across the board in terms of compliance, but 
also in the various operational risk and resilience uh, lines of defense. Another huge focus by regulators globally is on outsourcing arrangements and other regulators are chiming in on operational resilience issues. It's not just the UK. There have been several high-level supranational papers on it as well. And like I said, the UK regime is about to change, and that means that the bar for best practice is set to be raised very soon. The UK regulators think this work is very high impact, and it looks like compliance will be a multi-year project. The work firms regulators, the work regulators expect firms to complete requires in-depth analysis of all of their business lines with all kinds of mapping exercises to assess vulnerabilities and operational issues, outsourcing being one of them. But again, it's going to be cyber, uh, technology, and that that kind of flavor of thing. And it's going to be tough for those firms who are less sophisticated in their thinking and approach to get this right. Uh, The last thing I wanted to say here is again about the cybersecurity threat. We've seen that grow during the pandemic as people working from home are more, more vulnerable to phishing attacks, for example. But one of the big things that we've just seen is the Russian hackers have invaded almost every corner of the U.S. government using these uh, stolen FireEye tools. Now, that's one of these cybersecurity uh, companies in the U.S. And firms really need to be all over this because a lot of them are going to be using FireEye tools. And... Unfortunately, it's a huge story that hasn't really gotten a lot of airtime because there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, COVID being one of the things, some of the drama in the United States and elsewhere. Um, And the last thing I wanted to say was I just wanted to echo what you and Mike Cowan were talking about in an earlier podcast about board oversight and expertise around particularly technology. And this applies to the reg tech and sub tech conversation too. But as you two said, there just isn't enough tech expertise on boards yet at firms or regulators. And given that these organizations are now so data focused and so tech focused, you really think someone would address that board level gap? I think it's absolutely essential. And I think those skills are going to be at an increasing premium because it's not only firms that will need and want those skills, but it will be the regulators as well. Um, I mean, traditionally, firms pay better than regulators, but we will see how that skills gap gets managed. And I think from my perspective, that skills gap is particularly acute at the more senior levels or even the most senior levels in firms. There are almost no, yeah, almost no firms who have sufficient skills at the board level where they are also executives. In other words, they may have the old non-exec who's a tech person, but to have executive directors who are the tech experts, I think that needs to become the norm. 
Um, so we'll see how that one pans out. Now, we, we've already mentioned SUPTEC and REGTEC, um, but to, to, to go into that just a little bit more, where are you seeing the role of technology and digital transformation in responding to the pandemic? Okay, I would say that the real light bulb moment here is the idea that good tech and data management practices give firms and regulators agility to respond to a crisis. And that means a lot of different things. For example, if there's an economic downturn like we're having now that puts pressure on financial services firms, businesses, increases counterparty risks, if they had good risk management and data management practices, they'd be able to get a picture of where their exposures and vulnerabilities are a lot more quickly. And this is something that's been going on since 2008. Um, but unfortunately, even though poor risk management, poor data quality, poor data management practices was one of the key takeaways from the 2008 great financial crisis, uh, progress on rectifying that has been a mixed bag, to uh, put it mildly. There's still an over-reliance on manual workarounds, which means spreadsheets or people manually pulling data together instead of having aggregated using a computer. And this is something that the uh, Basel Committee on Banking Supervision has been banging on about since 2013 when they put out their principles for better risk data aggregation and reporting. And the same can be said for regulators, by the way. They're still not able to get even near real-time data on firms' risks or financial resilience. They send out email requests, you know, survey monkey requests for data, and by the time they've done any analysis, the world has moved on. Now there's a movement to look at a wider range of subtech tools to address these deficiencies. I'd say we're some way off seeing any super efficient tech solution here. A lot of the work is in the very experimental stage, but there have been some upgrades to old systems to make it easier for firms to submit data and attempts to get the data in some kind of standardized way. But these efforts are pretty few and far between. A recent BIS paper could name 10, and some of them weren't even that new. Uh, other issues that arose during this pandemic uh, was the need to have more automation around manual and in-person processes like customer onboarding. And there was an issue around wet signatures being required on certain documents. I feel like those were more cultural and mental shifts that needed to happen. For example, we all know about DocuSign, what, why firms were relying on wet signatures for certain things and why that was, even came up as a problem is odd to me. And uh, we know that some firms, but not all, are able to do online client onboarding. Um, again... Not everybody has that, but you would think in today's world that you wouldn't have to go in branch in person to fill in forms with a pen and paper to open an account. And just shifting gears completely to the more whole side and trading 
part of the business. Another big technology and compliance issue is recording and record keeping compliance when it comes to trading activity and sales. Um, this has been a huge issue for regulators. They're very worried that the shift to home working was going to weaken compliance in areas uh, recording conversa- trading conversations and trading activities, for example, or just sales call recommending certain products to clients. So in the shift to working from home, the FCA acknowledged that not everybody was going to have their system set up to record everything remotely. And they gave a little leeway on that. But the end of last year, beginning of this year, they signaled, and we saw Market Watch 66 on this, Susanna, that um, the FCA wants everything recorded now, whether it's trading or for client contact. And that includes all social media, that includes WhatsApp. That includes LinkedIn, Telegram, whatever channel that you're using to communicate with clients. It has to be recorded and all phone calls have to be recorded. There's no excuses. And frankly, the technology exists to do this. What The problem is that all this record keeping, whether it's for market abuse purposes or to fulfill MIFID requirements, it's expensive. And adding on yet more recording capability is something that firms aren't overly excited about. But I've also heard that some prices have dropped a little in the last three to four years since MIFID was being implemented. So that's a little good news. Um, And I would lastly say, just in the UK at least, based on the number of pronouncements the Financial Conduct Authority has made about uh, systems and controls around market abuse and insider information in the last 10 months, um, they're going to not have a lot of sympathy for people who haven't been able to become compliant. And my other Uh, comment there would be that systems and control failures are easy pickings for the enforcement uh, division. Uh, It's easy to show that you had systems and control failures and give you a big fine for it. And I would add into that, you also need to have a focus on personal account dealing and to make sure that your traders or indeed whoever are not taking advantage or undue advantage of remote working to trade on their own account, potentially committing market abuse or whatever. Um, and the other thing with being able to evidence compliance, it's it's for me not just a question of being able to record all of the conversations, but you then have to be able to find them again. And that's often the bit firms find exceedingly difficult. So, you know, they've recorded absolutely everything, hundreds and hundreds of hours of phone calls or video calls or whatever. How do you find the needle in the haystack when you need to go back and look at something? That can be an absolute headache for compliance, but it's a headache they have to solve. And there will be very little regulatory patience if they haven't solved it, I would suggest. Very little regulatory patience. I think we saw... I think we saw a enforcement action. It was an old one or for an older 
uh, infraction around this being able to find records last year. And that was a, an aggregating factor that uh, the firm in question couldn't dig up the recordings or the logs of the phone calls that it, the FCA had requested. And I think their fine might have been increased. Yeah, in, that, in that was the ICAP fine. And yes, they were very much, mm-hmm. um, the, the FCA was clear in its disappointment that the records weren't there. And it said, whilst it made the investigation more difficult, it didn't make investigating them impossible. And it was very definitely an aggregating fact, aggravating factor in the fine. Um, there, there were an awful lot of other systems and controls issues in that particular enforcement action, um, but it was definitely an aggravating factor. So moving on, we've covered a lot of ground already. Moving on, Lindsay and Rachel, what changes are we seeing at the regulators themselves? And then by association, what are the potential impacts and implications for firms themselves? Lindsay, do you want to kick off? Um, Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to let Rachel go first, because obviously the US has a new administration and um, Rachel can speak to that. Go for it. Well, it's still really early days in the U.S. Uh, Gary Gensler, we mentioned him earlier. He's going to be, uh, well, he's the SEC chair nominee. He's formerly head of the CFTC in the Obama administration. He's uh, widely seen as being quite tough on industry. Uh, Then we've had Janet Yellen uh, being confirmed as the Treasury chief, not really a regulator, but she has made combating climate change and creating incentives for clean energy a priority. And that could feed into some of the ESG work that Lindsay was talking about. Uh, Another uh, big area of focus is going to be the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which was created off the back of the Dodd-Frank Act. And the Republicans have absolutely despised this uh, group since the beginning. (laughs) And after they finally got a leader, they made a lot of enforcement actions and put out a lot of fines and actually returned lots of money to consumers who had been ripped off. But under the Trump administration, a lot of energy was spent trying to argue in front of the Supreme Court that the CFPB was actually unconstitutional. They were trying to shut it down. That didn't work. And funnily enough, they were still managed to keep quite busy in the last four years, not they didn't do as much as they did under the Obama administration. But with Biden coming in, they're thinking that we're going to see a lot more activity here or kind of re- this uh, regulator will get its teeth back. And it particularly will ta- uh, target uh, predatory lenders, especially payday lenders. So, Rachel, do we have a nominee for who might be the head of the CFPB going forward? Yes, we do. <laughs> His name's Rohit Chopra. He was previously an assistant director at the CFPB. He has been working as a consumer advocate and 
a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission, and he is uh, done. He's done a lot of work in student loan reforms in the United States. So a very different flavor going forward to the previous four years of the CFPB. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And that's some wonderful uh, firms to watch, because if you look at the CFPB website, they have been even in the Trump administration, when they weren't getting a lot of support, they were very busy uh, in their enforcement actions against firms. It's it's astonishing how much they do there. Are we done with the US? We'll move on to the UK. Okay, uh, Rachel, if I start and feel free to jump in um, if you feel uh, like it. So in terms of the FCA, I think it's important to think about it as internal change and external change. So earlier, um, Susanna, we were discussing the architecture of UK financial regulation that is underway now that we have left um, the EU uh, entities. And so there we are very much seeing both from industry and from politicians uh, a a need um, or a hope that the regulators have more scrutiny imposed on them now um, in the new regime. And so yesterday's Treasury Select Committee um, aired various things from, you know, should there be a subcommittee of the Treasury Select Committee completely, you know, solely dedicated to monitoring the, the regulators, um, or should there be a, a joint committee, in fact, of of uh, uh, the commons of the lords to 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 scrutinize and of course if you're bringing in uh, members of the house of lords you have some very very experienced uh financial services uh grand dames there so um you know, there's, there's uh, if I could stop you there, Lindsay, I would suggest we also have a very grand lord. Lord Sassoon would be an absolute shoe in for that that committee should it should it arrive. Uh, yes, ab- potentially abso- Lord Tyree. Yeah, absolutely. There are there are there are there are loads. I, I was uh, yes, I shouldn't be sexist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, but some of the other things were quite interesting that were were being aired. So, um, for you know, if you remove us from the oversight of econ and financial services from the oversight of econ and the European regime, you know, you lose ESMAs and the and the peer review tool at the European level. It was hugely important one. It was a hugely important one for earing disparities between the way regulators basically police the same set of rules. Um, that's gone now. So, you know, that police level of, you know, is just checking that they are doing what they are supposed to be doing. And I'm not meaning to uh, be overly critical of the FCA here or the PRA. That's not my intention. But what I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to highlight what lawmakers, and I have heard this separately from industry. I mean, I um, was it something, oh goodness, in the days when we were still allowed to go out and see people, so a long time ago now, where um, industry were talking about maybe replicating what the European system has it by way of high-level expert groups to advise. Um, so at the end of the day, it's still, you know, the lawmakers that make the decisions, but there is, you know, expert input, you know, into any regulatory change. Um, so, you know, so that's that's one area. Another thing, um, because Econ has huge 
huge resources. Um, it was mentioned yesterday. They have a multi-million pound budget to research whatever they 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 want. Um, obviously, that is not going to be duplicated in the new UK system. So, how do you get that kind of check? Um, because you know the Treasury Select Committee, with the best will in the world, would say that they are not capable of going over everything that FCA is supposed to and the PRA set out in the business plan and you know achieve their objectives. And so there was it was muted that maybe muted that maybe the um, National Audit Office could provide this function um, in the same way that I understand um, this is done in, with some of the US regulators. It's done in the European space. So. You know, there's lots of ideas coming out into you know into um, discussion here about how scrutiny could be applied to regulators um, in the UK in future. So that's 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 one thing which is yet it's still a movable feast. We don't know where it'll where it'll come down, and very much firms should engage with the government's consultation. Um, on this, you know, to, to make sure that their their thoughts are 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 noted. Um, if we flip now to internally, what's going on? Uh, the FCA uh, sort of uh, it came out in November last year that the FCA is 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 having an internal restructure. Um, this redrawing of lines between divisions, supervision is being um, rejigged. Uh, we have a various new names uh, uh, for the executive directors, obviously uh, Megan Butler, Jonathan Davidson, and um, uh, Georgina Philippou are are exiting, although they're still there. Sorry, I should say Davidson and Philippou are exiting. Um, Megan Butler has has transferred to a a new role overseeing the the reorganization. But um, and this is where Rachel can probably jump in. Uh, we're also going to have for the first time a chief uh, data information and intelligence officer who should, his name should be getting announced pretty soon. I think the um, the recruitment process closed for this last year. So um, Rachel, you, you see this as quite an interesting move and one that's actually been well overdue. Right. Well, it's interesting that the FCA uh, announced its digital transformation about a year ago and its uh, program of work aimed at uh, using more data to become a more effective regulator. And part of this has been uh, moving uh, data, moving away from data centers and moving uh work uh, into the cloud and they want to be able to perform uh, analytics to track, uh, see if they can detect problems at firms earlier. And they started this uh, and they also have launched a new uh, replacement for the Gabriel tool, which is the system into which most of the uh, firms in the UK will report their uh, regular regulatory data, and that's in, now going into a new uh, system called Reg Data. Now, all of this is change and shifting has been going on without this person, the chief data and technology and intelligence officer. And 
there's still a lot of work to do. So I see it as a, a something that needs more oversight and that just all this change at the FCA, whether it's in moving around divisions or having this big digital transformation as being quite risky to the regulator. And there was a lot of board level concern about this over the summer. It was reflected in the board minutes that they put up on their website where there had been some hiccups and some problems. And I, I would imagine that's going to continue especially if someone new comes in and has a slightly different uh, way of thinking about things. And another uh, kind of strand of change that we're going to see, which has already started at the FCA, are changes stemming from the Gloucester Review. I think it was last week they announced this idea of use your authorization or lose it. Um, that was to tackle the problem that Gloucester identified that firms like the LCNF were becoming authorized, but only doing unregulated activity and using their FCA authorization as a badge of credibility to sell their products into the market. They want to put an end to that. Another uh, part to, to the Gloucester review was she uh, required a lot more joined up thinking in terms of uh, data that they have and information uh, sharing that, that was seen to be really lacking. Yeah. And Rach, if I can just um, cut in there, the other thing, I think perhaps for most readers of the Gloucester Report, the most shocking thing was that FCA supervision staff were not trained in how to read financial information. And of course, um, that is now being corrected. There is an education and training program underway to make sure that all frontline supervisors can understand financial information. So that uh, should be completed by the end of the first quarter. So yeah, so lots of, lots of change um, at various different levels. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how that feeds through um, into the impact on firms. Also just people, people coming and going. Sorry, the, you know, people leaving, people coming in. This is going to be a challenge for the FCA, particularly uh, with a lot of people continuing to work from home, making sure people are trained up on things like the reading financial statements and other yeah, technical absolutely. points of the job. Should I jump to... And that's... I, what I was going to say is training is not a one hit wonder in those sorts of circumstances. It has to be a continuing process. You can't just train people full stop Absolutely. and then assume that's, that, that's going to just stick and stay. It evolves. It always evolves. Absolutely. Um, um, I was just going to um, jump. We are. Oh, sorry. I was just quickly going to jump to ESMA because obviously very important in the European space, but um, since since the end of the transition, hugely important for UK-based firms as well. Um, so ESMA is due to get not only a new chair, but a new executive director this year. Um, and so there could be, you know, huge change in the, in, you know, potentially in the way the organization is, uh, is run. And also its remit is, you know, is it, is expanding. You know, we mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about Brexit that 
ESMA has been, you know, kicking the tires um, on uh, on all kinds of uh, local uh, uh, relocations for a couple of years now, and um, it it's, has expanded peer review powers. So, you know, the, 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 this is all it's all it's growing and and very much bedding down. I know it's been in place for best part of a decade now but it's you know it, it was set up stage and now it's very much in the you know policing making sure you know we have a level playing field in Europe um but also ESMA will be carrying out the technical work for the equivalent so it, it's it's an, an important uh just important one to note I think yeah I just wanted to say something quickly about Boffin uh the German uh regulator they had a real problem uh, over the summer with the wire card collapse. And uh, I, I'm going to use the word, it was a real embarrassment for them. And what was even worse was when ESMA came out with a report in November cr criticizing their approach and pointing out some of the issues that Boffin had that led to its failed supervision of Wirecard. It said it had a flawed market and institutional oversight architecture and that it needed changes at the national and European level to address it. It called for a strengthened mandate for Boffin. But I haven't heard anything happening in that regard yet and something that we need to follow up on. But, well, uh, traditionally, Barfin hasn't exactly been transparent. We, we, they are. We'll see. I mean, they are very much a Teutonic oh, style yeah. of regulation. That's a problem. Stark contrast to the UK and its Anglo-Saxon approach, which is truly transparent. I mean, we may not always like what we see, but it is a transparent form of regulation. Whereas Barfin, just that's not their style. That's not how they do business. No, and there was some other. I'm going to use the word again, embarrassing coverage of Boffin in the FFT. I think it was either this week or last saying that the wire card collapse came as a big surprise, uh, especially to Felix Hoffield, right, who's the, the head of Boffin right up until the end. They thought that uh, some nefarious short sellers were behind some of the problems that the company had. And we know that's not true. What we do know is that, you know, many Boffin staff were actually trading in wire to card uh, shares. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. I, I think lots of people are still scratching their heads and I mean, think somebody was drafting a plan, but I haven't even had a whiff of it yet. But if anybody listening has anything to uh, add on that, please let us know. We'd love to hear it. We would indeed. Now, sadly, we have pretty much run out of times and we've covered a huge amount of ground and a great conversation all around. So ladies, what are your key takeaways just very quickly from this huge conversation we've just had. Um, Lindsay, do you want to just wrap up your bits? Yeah, absolutely. So SMCR, um, just watch for um, action, you know, make sure, you know, if you are somebody that's sitting with senior uh, management responsibility for something, make sure that your map is absolutely and your, and your, uh, your statement of responsibilities, you're absolutely on top of it. We've, you know, the 
seen a number of DCO letters throughout the COVID uh, pandemic where the FCA is and the PRA are, are very much looking for names to, uh, you know, where, if things go wrong, uh, you know, so, and, you know, so just make sure you're on top of that. ESG, this is not, it's not going away. Uh, you need to, if your head is in the sand, you need to take it out. You need to get your data sorted and engage with any consultations that are still ongoing. If you have ideas about what, what data you should be using and how you should be reporting it. Um, so you've been well warned. Brexit um, seems to be okay in terms of financial services at the moment. I'm not talking about market access there, but the fact that the whole thing hasn't fallen over is, is, a, is a great testament to the arrangements that financial services industry put in place. Don't expect a resumation, a resumption of market access, but I really don't think most of the people I talk to really don't expect that. And it could be a long wait for equivalence decisions. That's me. And Rachel. Okay. With operational resilience, uh, I would sum it up with uh, three words, which or not, or four vigilance, cyber, and new rules. Uh, especially the new rules coming from the UK, possibly in March, are going to be very tough for firms to tackle. And on the reg tech and sub tech uh, conversation, I would say the watchword there is agility. Uh, reg tech and sub tech are properly used, are going to make it easier for regulators and firms to shift gears, respond to crises, and just simply get compliance and risk management right. Ladies, thank you so much. I think that has been a fascinating conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. And I do hope you found it both useful and interesting. Now, there are a wealth of articles underlying today's discussion, and there are links to those in the episode notes. Also in the episode notes is a download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And last but not least, I mean, I know Rachel asked if you've got any update on Barfin, but we'd also very much appreciate it if you could take the time to review the podcast. And if there is anything else you'd like us to chat in future episodes, do just let us know. Many thanks. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.